Welcome to the Third Growth Option Podcast, where we talk with business leaders and innovators hungry to drive growth that can be faster than internal organic growth and less risky than acquisition. Your moderator is Bernal Dunkerspuler, Chief Sherpa and CEO at Realign, who has led private equity-owned distributors through turnarounds and growth. With battle-proven leaders from all frontiers, we want to provoke thinking about business growth beyond conventional wisdom and binary choices. Hi, I'm Benno, your podcast host, talking about growth with people who want to grow, are passionate and talented at it. And today we're going to talk about diversity at work as a way to nurture growth. Uh, What fosters it, what gets in its way with a gentleman who helps people work through labor and employment disputes, which we all face either as employers or employees. I'm excited to talk about nurturing growth through diversity with David Highland. David, say hi to the group here. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. So this idea of a diverse workforce and a corporate culture that promotes its value can really improve productivity, can lead to better service. It can really benefit everyone. And anyway, that's my thesis. And David, I'm sure you'll poke holes at it or add different perspective to it. Another part of a diverse workforce is this idea that, you know, it doesn't come about by itself or with a couple people or even the leader making it. So I think it does require sort of systems for individual buy-in to take root, to take hold. And those systems for promoting and managing diversity, in the end, they're sort of part of the labor market, just like pricing or quality are part of the product market. I think they're part of how we need to look at the labor market and should be sort of given the same attention as other parts of the market. Before I ask you to sort of introduce yourself, I I need to do a public service PSA announcement here. Warning to the audience, David and I have known each other forever. <laughs> uh, you you and I met when we were teenagers in upstate New York. You lived on a farm. I lived on a farm. We were both sort of unlikely farm kids. Your dad was a classical pianist turned dairy farmer. Mine, a German Jewish investment entrepreneur who had mixed bags of success in that field, immigrated to the United States as an organic venison farmer and you and I just did a lot of stupid things uh, and somehow got ourselves admitted to Cornell University and even more miraculously uh, graduated from the place. I went into a business career. You went on to law school. Somehow we both ended up somewhat respectable citizens. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> no, I think more for you than for me, actually. <laughs> just give the audience a little flyover of your career. Sure, sure. You know, after I, we were graduated from Cornell University in the uh, mid-1980s, I started a job as a union organizer, and I did uh, union-side work for about a decade and went to law school sort of in the middle of that. I didn't uh, go immediately to law school. And then I spent about a decade or a little bit more as a management-side labor lawyer and negotiator for the, you know, the, the country's largest uh, public transit system, the MTA New York City Transit, which has about 55,000 employees. Wow. Uh, Yeah, I know. That's a lot of employees. It sure is. 
and I spent I've spent uh, a little over a decade now as a neutral labor and employment arbitrator and mediator. It's sort of almost like a third, a third, a third my my career so far, but all sort of in the same industry. Interesting. This is sort of a, you could take that as a personal question, maybe as a professional question. What do you rebel against? I'm sure there's a laundry list that I could tell you, but relevant to, to what we're discussing today, I think really a lack of authenticity or a lack of sincerity in programs that are sort of billed as change and, you know, without much action and without much buy-in from the employees it's intended to benefit. Like program du jour? Yes. We hear a lot of that in my industry, you know, really talking about, you know, human resources and employee relations and we find many, many times that those become more bromides than they do calls to action. Right. So um, to kind of dig into the topic at hand here, so I, I, I believe and my experience has, has taught me that real diversity, real workplace diversity, both in sort of the sense of diversity as sort of defined by law protected under Title VII, I think it is, but also diversity in the sense of diversity of opinion and diversity of open-mindedness. I think workplace diversity is really essential to an organization's success and to the resilience of any enterprise. And diversity at work requires established systems and buy-in and, and, and real action, as you say, not, not just some bumper sticker slogan, but you know it needs to be promoted with a culture that stands behind it, where it's not just talking the talk, but really walking the walk, right? How do you think about diversity? How do you sort of define diversity? As a lawyer, I think about it, obviously, in terms of, uh, you've already mentioned Title VII, there are a number of different statutes out there, federal. And there's it was that one labor law class I took that I remember that from. Okay, well, that's, <laughs> well I'm glad you remembered that. Um, I had to go to law school to remember all of that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's federal, state, and local law. Uh, of course, that's that's the first thing that would come to mind as a lawyer involving race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and you know those are important baseline laws that underpin lots and lots of programs that are meant to deal with uh, workplace diversity. But I, I view those as a baseline, and. I don't think that they alone, and they certainly have proven because of where we are today, that they alone do not solve the problem. I believe that the more diverse, and it's been my experience, the more diverse the workforce is, especially the people who are enforcing those laws, the better those laws are enforced. I had thrown out earlier this idea of diversity of opinions, of ideas, of open-mindedness. A saying just came into my head that I read couple of years ago, this idea of we ought to have strong ideas weekly held. I love that juxtaposition of strong ideas weekly held because we should bring strong opinions to the workplace. We should research them and really believe in them. We should also be open to change, open to having other people convince us that another opinion is maybe as valuable or more valuable. So our opinion should be weakly held. I think that's a constant call to continue one's education, whether formally or informally. Uh, I think it requires that we read a lot. It requires that we keep our ears open. It requires that we permit ourselves to reimagine some of the 
ideas that we walk into a room with. I absolutely agree with you that you should come in knowing what you know, say it out loud, and then listen. Uh, listening is, is one of the, I mean, you know, there's a big difference and we talk, you know, I'm not the first person to say it, there's a big difference between hearing someone and listening to someone. And if you can integrate a good idea, you have to do it as hard as it is. This is not about ego. There are lots of good ideas out there and I didn't come up with all of them. So speaking of having, you have to do it. So we're talking about diversity. How do you measure if we are doing it? How do you measure the success of a diversity program? It's a really good question. And I think it's a question that's being asked an awful lot or will be asked an awful lot in the coming years, just based on where we are uh, as a nation, that I think the traditional way that we think about these things is there's a bottom line, right? There's an effect on profitability in the private sector. Uh, that's, that's one way that it gets measured. Or, you know, in the public sector, it's, you know, how short is the line at the DMV? How do we measure what we do? And I think we need to move to a place, and I think we're moving there, to value diversity for its own sake. And really coming to a conclusion that your team needs to be reflective of the larger community that it serves or seeks to attract. Because, I mean, it's, it's easy to say it's the right thing to do, but it is. It's the right thing to do. And whether you can measure that directly, and I don't know how you would do that. I'm not an economist. But whether or not you can do that, I think it stands on its own as an independent good. And I think that the more we try to talk about it in terms of measuring it in traditional ways, gets in the way of actually implementing some of these things. Yeah, and it's, it's like, you know, there was a lot of discussion 20, 30 years ago about quotas, right? Yes, un unfortunately, yes, which never existed, but, but yes. Yeah, or, or um, there's an, another term that escapes me now. Yeah, affirmative action. Affirmative action. Thank you very much. You know, that was a way to assign a number and quota or whatever metrics defined it that people bristled against. And, you know, there are positives and negatives. But the reason I'm bringing up affirmative action here is to sort of juxtapose it to what you just said, which is diversity should be recognized as valuable in it by itself because it's the right thing to do. And recognizing that there's been affirmative action for white people in this country for generations. Right. <laughs> that, that, uh, there is so, that. <laughs> I mean, there is that, exactly. And, and so, you know, we've made these things kind of, these, these terms of art, uh, in some ways, dirty words. But what I really think it, it really is about viewing diversity as a good in and of itself. Right. So as an employment arbitrator, what kind of issues do you deal with? There's a, there's a litany. Uh, mostly what is brought to me by the labor organization and an employer are cases involving proposed disciplinary actions, you know, often for absenteeism, discharge cases, cases involving discrimination. And then there's a whole sort of breach of contract group of cases, uh, often over an employee who's complaining about being improperly paid or assigned to work that uh, they have an objection to for some reason or another. So there's many, many more disputes, but, but those are the main ones. Got you. And most of the work you do is, is in the public field, public sector? That's true, yes. Um, and, and, and that's reflective of the general population right now in the United States. That uh, The public sector is percentage of employees in the public sector who are organized is much higher than it is in the private sector. And what do public employers do to avoid disputes? There's a number of strategies that, again, partnering with unions where they have 
represented employees. There's a number of different ways that parties try to resolve disputes and or manage disputes without involving necessarily an arbitrator or the court system for that matter. Some of those involve training programs. Some of them involve joint labor management committees to deal with specific issues that are important to employees. There are lots of small things that I've seen people, you know, seen folks do. And I guess they would fall under the category of really getting to know your workforce better. And of course, there's an element of diversity in that as well. But the ones that I see working the best are where there's, there's some bona fide partnership there where employees feel like they are being heard, listened to, and that there's some meaningful result at the end of it. That's been my experience anyway. So when you say knowing your people, you're sort of talking about winning hearts and minds and mano a mano, you know, one-on-one. If Jean and Sally talk to each other, you know, then they see each other as human beings that can resolve issues as opposed to officials or position holders. Is that what you're talking about? There, there's a human element to all of this. And in large organizations, you know, obviously it's the larger the organization, the more challenging that is. Uh, if you have thousands of employees doing the same job and you have maybe a hundred supervisors, it, it becomes more difficult. Certainly it's challenging. But I do think that when an organization makes those kinds of efforts, I think it gets noticed and it doesn't have to be perfect. But I do think it becomes a way of incrementally changing the culture that doesn't necessarily need to be announced as a program or as a, you know, to have a tagline. It really is about human beings taking more of an interest in each other and understanding their own, you know, individual life circumstances and, and how we respond to those. Right. And in the private sector, we, we talk a lot about culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Um, when, when culture is embraced, the, you know, it starts, usually starts at, with the leadership of the company. And when it, it is embraced throughout the company and people are authentically embracing a culture of diversity, then that works. If, you know, if I'm going to be looked at askance in the wrong way by a colleague because I am not embracing diversity, that's probably a lot more effective way to make sure that I embrace diversity than if I'm being called into human resources and told to be more inclusive. I think that that's, that's a fair statement. I think in general, again, this is just, just my own observations, there has to be some visible action that's consistent with the culture of the mission statement. And, and that can be a small thing or a big thing. I'll give you a small example. Most companies, probably all, but most companies of any size will have a policy manual. And many of them track very closely with federal, state, and local law. And they have the book, they give it to employees, this is our policy, this is what we do. And they don't see much of it in their daily lives because most people don't wind up having any problems. You know, they go to work, they come back, they come every day, and you know, they have a whole career there. But they don't really see any of it. Small example from my own experience was big organization. I had about, oh, I don't know, about a hundred people in my department. I had some control over about 25 to 30 of them. And I produced a calendar, which is signed essentially employee uh, lawyers and some paraprofessionals to specific assignments on a daily basis. And we had a holiday schedule that 
my predecessor had written down, you know, Easter Sunday and all this stuff. And what I did was I looked around and I wasn't sure who was an adherent of what religion or what holiday. So I just went to, I Googled every holiday that I could possibly Google and I put them all on a calendar. Holidays that I didn't know existed. And I just put them on the calendar and I asked people to tell me if they had a religious or other need to honor any of those holidays. And there were a number of people who came to me and said, nobody had ever asked them this before. And they didn't necessarily want an accommodation, but they appreciated that I had asked the question. Now, it's something as simple as that. And a couple of people were visibly, you know, almost tears. Nobody had ever asked them a question like that. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a saint or I'm, the, I'm a brilliant person. It just means that sometimes a very small effort, and it was a small effort on my part, made what I think was a significant difference in the feel of that office for people who might have felt a little left out. I think if you put, if you stack a lot of those things together, they begin to look like something real. And I think that we all can play a role in contributing to whatever the mission statement or the policy manual says. That's a great example. And, you know, when we're talking about systems versus individual actions, it's, as you said, both are necessary. And people taking, you know, sort of bumper sticker slogans or paragraphs of the law, and then they're doing something as kind of touching as what you describe, you know, a simple action like asking people, hey, did I get all the holidays that are important to you? Did I get them right? Just asking that question is a great way to promote diversity and frankly so dang simple isn't it exactly and you know there are bigger systemic things you can do one of the one of the most common ones that i've seen in, in larger organizations is traditionally the human resource function you know the vice president of human resources reported to a senior vice president who reported to the ceo when you drop that dotted line and you make the hr director or the hr function report directly to the CEO, it sends a big message. There are some more, I think, progressive corporations who have done that in recent years. Excellent. Well, we covered quite a bit of ground here in terms of defining diversity, talking about how do you measure the success of it. We talked about different things that you as an arbitrator get dragged into when things don't work out between employer and employee. And you know this whole idea of system, systematic versus individual action approach. You had told me a story a while back when you were a young attorney and your boss had paired you with another attorney. Yeah, I remember telling you that. <laughs> I remember telling you about that one. You yeah. liked that story. I did, um, I did. Yeah, I kind of like it too. It was one of, those, one of those things that doesn't happen to everybody, but um, I, this goes back you know, more than, I think, 25 years. Yeah, I was paired with a with a more seasoned attorney who had been in the organization a number of years before I had arrived there. And my boss, you're going to be working with this guy. And I said, okay. And he split the docket of cases with me and told me in advance that uh, he has never lost a case. And I said, oh my God, he's never lost a case. I'm going <laughs> to... I'm terrified. I am absolutely terrified. So in addition to spending twice as many hours as I otherwise would have making sure that I didn't lose anything, I realized I might lose a couple. And I went in and I went in my boss and I said, Jesus, you know, this guy's never lost a case. I'm, I'm sure I could learn a lot from him. But what, you know, 
I, I think I'm going to lose something. And he said, don't worry so much about that. Just go in and do, you know, just, just do your work. And I got done with the, you know, with the, I got, to, I got a couple of results back and I think I did lose, I think I lost a case. And I went back to my boss and I, you know, hat in hand, ready to, ready to be fired. And he said, well, I can promise you that the cases that you were given were the harder cases, that this guy likes to take the easy cases. And that way he can say that he always wins. And I said, well, this is just too elementary for me. And he said, listen, I did this for a reason. I don't expect you to win every case. And in fact, if you do, it means you're not doing your job because you're not taking a risk. Uh, you'll never know whether you're going to win if you don't try to win a couple of you know cases that are really, really difficult. I want you to do the difficult cases. And I remembered that, obviously, for more than 25 years. And you know, in the context of what we're talking about today, it's again, it's about this manager, this boss of mine, who I'm still friendly with all these years later, about how he defines success. What is a success? Is it winning every case? Or is it working really hard to push the envelope a little bit when it's risky to do it, even if you lose. And I think I can certainly did. And I think lots of folks can learn from that kind of a story that, you know, success, the way we did it, success is an opinion. A lot of the time, you know, I have, I won by losing. Very cool. You know, when, 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 when somebody tells you, Hey, I, I never lost a case and you better not lose a case. And, you know, that just sort of sets up the, the measurement of success in the wrong way and and you know he kind of cheated the system to begin with by only taking easy cases and never taking a risk oh and you know he was he was gone within about a year after that anyway there um, you go as, as it turns <laughs> out <laughs> speaking of sort of how do you measure the success how do you measure a diversity program i have a story that also happened probably over 25 years ago now i was working at uh, pottery born at the time and my boss, Gary Friedman, who's now the big cheese at Restoration Hardware, he he would always say, you need to bring your opinions to work. We're not paying you to leave your opinions at home. And that was such a powerful way of building a culture that valued diversity of opinions. I still think about that today. And I'm, you know, I, I would walk over hot coals for that guy, you know, today because he made sure that everybody was heard and that our opinions were heard. It wasn't a democracy. He didn't always go with our opinions. He went with his own plenty of times, but we always felt like we were heard. What if we did that all the time? I know. How would the world look if we said to an hourly employee, what do you think? How do you think we could change something to make it better? What kind of impact might that have? Personally, I think it would have a huge impact. Is it manageable? I don't know. I think it is, but I don't know. I don't think we've tried enough of it. And I think we're on the cusp of maybe trying more of that. And I think that would be probably the best experiment we could do in labor relations and employee relations in 25 years. I agree. Hey, this was a awesome conversation. I learned a few new things about how um, you as an employment and labor arbitrator and mediator think about diversity. Um, so we talked through, you know, diversity of opinions, diversity of people, of individual backgrounds, and, you know, having a, a system or a culture that values that diversity and those differences of contribution. And it's, you know, not only the right thing to do, but again, I believe 
It also improves productivity and financial outcomes that can benefit the greater good. If somebody would like to get a hold of you, would you like to share contact information or email address or something? Sure. I always learn a lot when I speak to you, Benno. It's it's just, uh, it's always been true. It's been, God, almost 40 years. Contact information, uh, you can reach me uh, at, and I use my middle name as my, you know, David Highland, but uh, actually my first name is Edward. So I use my middle and my first initial, it's E David Highland, H-Y-L-A-N-D at gmail.com. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much. If anybody wants to explore more growth topics uh, one-on-one, you can find me on our website, realignforresults.com, or you can email me, Benno, B-E-N-N-O, Benno at realignforresults.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, let's keep growing. You can listen to more episodes on Apple, Spotify, or Google. We would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review it. Share it with your friends or colleagues if you enjoyed the content. Always growing.